September and uh, as uh, everyone can notice the uh, autumn is setting in the um, colors of the the leaves are beginning to change and uh, the um, uh, brightness of the the days dimming certainly days like today uh, yesterday a beautiful warm sunny weather and the, the light uh, and causing the the changing leaves to to glow golden and and red and uh, taking on their their autumn hues and we can think oh how beautiful how lovely uh, how delightful yeah, up on the shrine a few of the autumn leaves uh, uh, being uh, beautiful decorations, embellishments for the for the shrine. So when we see the the changing leaves and the, the this ending part of the year, then because of our human eyes and our human senses, we can uh, we can feel that is something beautiful, something lovely, something delightful, inspiring. This is natural enough. But if we if we reflect and we realize, well, this is the this is the death process. The, these leaves have been born in the spring. They've done their, their bit through the year, and now they're dying. You know, autumn is a, a time of dying, and uh, the, the faculties of the leaves are fading. They can no longer gather light and turn it into to sugar and, and strength for the for the bush or the trees, the the plant. They're they're fading. They're dying. But yet, from a human perspective, we can think how beautiful, how lovely, how glorious. But when our own faculties um, start uh, fading and, and dying, we don't think that way, do we? When our, our hearing starts to go and we, uh, wanting people to speak up, speak more clearly, <laughs> we don't think, oh, how beautiful, how glorious. Or when we can't remember somebody's name, we, we think, I know, I know her really well, what the heck's her name? Can't remember people's names, can't remember what we came into a room to do. We walk into the room and then we realize, so, I was going to get, what was I going to get? Why am I in this room? Hmm. Go back where we started from and try again. When, uh, when we, we relate to our own faculties, then it's an, for most of us, it's an experience of loss. Uh, a sort of regret. Uh, we can't see so clearly. We need to wear glasses. We can't hear so clearly. Our energy levels suddenly. Uh, we used to be able to go full steam all day long, 
suddenly we get to a certain point in the day and we feel, oh, I need a nap. <laughs> suddenly the, the needle is on empty, the, the tank is uh, exhausted and uh, our, our energy has disappeared. So we can say we can so easily relate to that as a, as a sense uh, of loss or something going uh, something going wrong as a kind of disaster or a um, a state of of diminution a state of lack um, and uh, part of us really doesn't want that to happen part of us says oh no no yeah not, not my ears not my eyes <laughs> not my mobility. Well, like uh, you know, the uh, the long term plan for Amravati, you know. So I keep saying it's a thirty year plan. I'll be yeah, ninety years old by the time it's finished. You know, ha ha ha. Kind of joking, kind of not joking. <laughs> but that, but if they, if I hold that in a certain way of like, well, I've launched this thing, so I should be responsible for it. And that means I've got to hold my faculties together until I'm ninety. Well, my grandfather was still running his business in the city of London when he was 95. And he was blind from when he was 70. And he was really annoyed when he turned 90 and they stopped him from working on Saturdays. He was deeply irritated. <laughs> what do you mean I can't work on six days a week? <laughs> but if I, if I hold on to that thought... And think it's got it's got to be uh, got to be me who's sort of looking after things and got to have all my faculties you know, sharp and got to be able to remember people's names and <laughs> remember which meeting I'm supposed to have on which day and which building is going to go where. Then, as those faculties fade and I, I can't remember people's names, or I I show up for the meeting on the wrong day, or yeah, uh, uh, my thoughts are not orderly, or I lose the plot, then. If I'm not wise, then that'll be a cause of suffering. Uh, something that uh, I think, oh, it shouldn't be this way, or, or uh, uh, oh, no, this is, this is not fair, or it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be happening. And this ex- experience is a state of, of suffering, of, uh, of, uh, of loss. I think there shouldn't be. Uh, but if we're wise, then we, we look at it like the autumn leaves, okay? The, the leaves are born in the spring, they do their thing through the summer, then the, the autumn comes, the, the days shorten and the, the leaves turn, they go golden and brown and red and they fade and, and, uh, and uh, shrivel and, and uh, fall off, die. That's, that's their cycle, that's what they do. And so none of us know exactly when, when our, uh, our faculties are going to fade and, and when they will, or if they will, how long they'll last. Maybe I'll still be firing all cylinders when I'm 95. Maybe this is the last dumb talk I ever give. Maybe my brains give out tonight. <laughs> Who knows? You know? None of us have any guarantees. The, I enjoy having reasonably functional thinking faculties, but it could be, you know, my brain blows a fuse tonight, and then I can't remember anybody's name. I can't remember my name. <laughs> by the by, the way, and you think, well, it's just a dumb talk. He's only he's only just making an illustration. <laughs> but who knows? We really don't know. And this is the the power of the dhamma. If we're practicing dhamma, then we don't take refuge in those kind of perceptions. We don't take refuge in the the mind's. Um, 
capacities or its judgments or, or other faculties that we, we seem to possess, the, the, the things that we seem to own, that uh, in a worldly way that those are the refuges that we make, uh, our, our possessions, our, um, our ability to, to see and, and uh, hear and move and speak, remember, to act, to engage in a meaningful way with others, to relate in a sort of caring, mindful, friendly, uh, helpful, uh, responsive way to others. We take refuge in those capacities, uh, but uh, if we're wise, that's not where we make our refuge. We, we recognize, well, these are dependent perceptions. Right now, it's very convenient and helpful that uh, I can still speak, <laughs> can remember, can think, uh, but that's not a permanent condition. It won't be there forever. That's because that's the way nature operates. Maybe all the cylinders will be firing cheerfully away uh, up until I'm 95 or, or longer, until 120, you know, who knows? But it also, if there's wisdom, and we recognize, well, today it works like this, tomorrow, you know, who knows? But we, uh, if we recognize this process and we really reflect and develop the anicca sanya, the perception of uncertainty, impermanence, this is a great freeing of the heart. This is how the the prison of uh, <coughs> of ignorance gets opened. The the doors of of ignorance uh, are opened, and uh, the heart is really freed because we don't take refuge. We don't look for security in that which is intrinsically insecure. We don't look for certainty in that which is uncertain. I often reflect how the, the, we unconsciously take refuge in our judgments. We, we say, oh, this is good, and that's bad. Like uh, the ability to, to think and remember and to move, we say, that's good. And if we're sick or we have an injury or our faculties start going, then we, we call it bad. I can't hear, I can't see can't move, can't think straight, we call that bad. Or the way we judge simple you know, things like uh, sights or sounds, flavors, we say, oh, that's a beautiful thing, that's an ugly thing, oh, that's a beautiful taste, that's an ugly, awful taste, that's a beautiful smell, that's a terrible smell. We each have our own particular conditioning, our preferences, uh, the particular uh, things that the mind is used to, that we're accustomed to, and these uh, everyday judgments that the mind makes. But if we're wise, if we really want to free the heart, then we'll, we'll reflect on exactly how subjective and conditioned those judgments are. This is a, a, a theme of, of so many Dhamma talks you know, from, given by so many different Ajahns over the centuries, centuries decades. But uh, it's, it's, it's a teaching that's given very, very often because it's so central, it's so important to uh, fulfilling the intentions that we've all come here for, that whether we're here for a day or a, a week, a month, a year, a decade, or the rest of our life. This, uh, this simple but uh, essential insight is, uh, in a way, the, 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 the pivot of our uh, practicing Dhamma to to change the perceptions that we that we have. A simple thing that like the example I often give is about about food. You know, so when at least how it works for me is if I'm hungry, uh, 
And when I approach the sala at 11.30, or just before 11.30, it's say 11.20, and I walk through the, the door of the monk's reception room, then uh, the smell of the food being prepared in the kitchen meets my nostrils. And something in the heart goes, aha, food, good, want. The basic instinct of the smell reaching the nostrils, the, the, um, the hunger centers in the brain being affected, and then this, this uh, feeling of mm, good, food, hungry, excellent, opportunity for, uh, for eating, imminent. This is a good thing. <laughs> That's a basic instinct. We, we call that, uh, we call that good, and we might, and we say that's an attractive smell or something that, that smells good. Something that, that's pleasing. I also often notice it when I'm leading a, a retreat at the retreat center. So just at the point when you come round the, the corner of the, the, uh, the women's, uh, dormitory wing and you, you um, just approaching the uh, retreat center kitchen, just as you come round the corner, the smell of toast hits your nose. You go, mmm. <laughs> so uh, it's important that we notice those things uh, that, that the mind goes, oh yes and then uh, similarly uh, when the, uh, uh, the the meal time is over often I'm receiving guests talking to people after the meal time and uh, staying in the sala till everyone has gone all of his visitors have uh, come and chatted and, and taken their leave and then uh, being in the sala after all the food has been cooked and everyone has gone, then the, the smell in the sala is like, oh, smells pretty stinky in here. Better open up some windows. Yeah. Air the place out. Hook the door open. Open a few windows. You know, clear the smell out. It's the same smell, I would suggest. Some of you say, no, 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 it's different, Ajahn. The, the, food, the smell of food that has just been prepared is very different than the smell of food that's been around for an hour. Ah, uh, possibly? <laughs> But possibly not. So, but the, the the smell of food when your stomach is full, I find, is very very different. Has a different effect, a different impact than the smell of food when you're hungry. When you're hungry, the mind goes, mm, "Yes, won't." But when the, the stomach is full, then the same smell, I would say, <laughs> technically the same smell or something very similar, goes, "Ugh." This is really stinky, unpleasant. Open the windows, get uh, get rid of it. Uh, this is uh, unappealing. So this is a a a, a, a really important uh, basis for insight, isn't it? What is a, a ostensibly the same sensory experience in one situation is uh, it causes happiness and, and excitement, interest. Uh, an hour later, it causes uh, revulsion, disinterest, and it's, it's off-putting. Uh, so where is the happiness? Where, where, is the, where is the goodness? Where is the beauty? It's in our mind, isn't it? The mind is everything. The, the, the smell is the mind's representation of the smell, and that, that judgment of good or, or, or bad is in the mind. It's created by the mind. The mind is everything. The mind is what creates uh, its version of the world. So when we, we recognize this, then it, uh, uh, it's a very 
it reaches very deeply through our whole way of appreciating the world, the way we judge, oh, this is beautiful, that's ugly, I like that, this, that I, I don't like that. How much of our life as human beings in, in uh, our worldly pursuits, obviously the kind of people who come and spend an evening sitting in uh, Amravati temple listening to a Dhamma talk, practicing meditation, chanting, and so on, where a little bit more reflective than everybody who's out of the pub or just sort of sitting at home watching soap operas and <laughs> or you know, out uh, uh, filling their minds with, with worldly activity. But still, to uh, reflect upon our life and see how much effort and time we, we spend gathering around us the, the things we like, the, the, the people that we like, the objects that we like, the, the books we like to read, the... The, the ways we entertain ourselves, beautiful things. And we, we keep feeling that it's in the object, it's in the shape, it's in the color, it's in the smell, it's in the taste, it's in the sound. That's where the beauty is. And we make the, the effort in, in the world, I mean, the, how much of the economy of most countries runs on <laughs> people consuming, acquiring stuff uh, to have those the particular sensory impacts the things that they, they they taste, the things that they see, the things that they hear, the smell and touch, to keep repeating or uh, increasing the excitement and variety of, of objects to create those same effects. This is a theme that's really, uh, I find, uh, rich to explore. And uh, it's uh, something that I reflect on over and over again, that it's not, it's not the flavor of that food that we love, it's the, the state of mind that it brings. When you're hungry and you have a mouthful of your favorite taste, uh, the, then we love the experience that it brings. We don't love the potato or the, the, uh, uh, the lettuce. We love the, uh, the, the experience that it brings in the mind. Your favorite music or the chanting. The, it's not the, the, the sound that we love. It's the state of mind that arises when the sound is heard. That's what we love. The person that we're with, or the, the, uh, that, uh, the, the, our favorite um, friends, or our, our, our beloved Ajahn, you know, it's, we don't love, uh, again, I know it's a bit, um, uh, maybe a bit up for debate, <laughs> but I say it's not, it's not so much the person that we love, but it's what happens in our mind when, we, when we're with that person. When we, we meet in a certain way, or we have a certain kind of contact or engagement, then that's the, what we love is that feeling that arises within the heart, within the mind, when we're with that person. That's what we love. We don't love the 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 uh, the, the object itself. We love the place it takes us to. We love the that feeling that arises in the heart. So it's it's the the mind is everything. In this respect, everything is the mind. And when we reflect in this way, then this brings and, and really take that to heart this dependent nature of experience and the uncertain, uh, the insubstantial nature of, of our judgments. And this, this changes. Uh, the way that we, we relate to other people, it changes the relate, way we relate to possessions and, and the sense world. It really frees the heart from ha always having to 
have particular stuff around to make us happy, having to be in the company of certain people to make us happy, or having to have certain foods or flavors or, and to make you happy. It's like a, over the, the weekend I was um, at a, having to co-lead an event in London and I spent a, a day with my sister and and uh, she, my sister casually asked me, what is your favorite food? You know, I said, I really like French food and Italian food. What's your favorite food? And my mind went completely blank. You know? <laughs> Usually when people ask me that, I say, my favorite food is the food that's in my bowl. I'm not interested in the food in Ajahn Ariasilo's bowl or Ajahn Vimalo's bowl, because <laughs> I don't have access to that. <laughs> the food that I like is the food that's in my bowl. Uh, the, uh, the more that we can develop flexibility and uh, a recognition of this this kind of dependent and empty nature of, of sense experience, the more that we find a freedom of heart, whether there's a, a sound that we like or we don't like, we're okay. Whether there's a sight that we do like or we don't like, we're okay. We're not chasing after particular visual forms or sounds or... or uh, smells or tastes, particular sensations that to make us happy. It changes the way we, we relate to physical pain. You know, pain is not going to be uh, pleasant, you know, it's painful, it's, it's, our, it's our pudding. But if we are unwise, we'll, we'll create the, the attitude of mind that as long as this painful feeling is here, I can't be content, I can't be happy. Only when this feeling is gone, then uh, the world will be okay. Uh, if this is as soon as this is over, I will be fine. If I can get away from this this feeling in the body, then that will be good. If I can get away from this smell or this sound or this taste, then I will be happy. As soon as this is over, everything will be good. So the more uh, that we we relate, we think in this way, then the more we make ourselves dependent. We make our happiness extremely fragile, and uh, uh, the liable to be um, uh, restricted, limited, you know, that, that we're always going to be, uh, even, uh, even when things are pleasant and as we like, we're trying to hang on to them. And when something is difficult or, or painful, something is unliked, unwanted, then we are, we're seeing the world as being wrong or bad or out of order. So as uh, Lumpur Chan would often say, like and dislike are, are, are of equal value. This is what the kind of area, area is pointing to. When we can shift our perceptions, then uh, it makes a huge difference. There's a, there's a, uh, 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 a capacity to respond to what we experience, whether we like it or don't like it, huh? uh, whether we call it beautiful or ugly or uh, mediocre in between. And the heart is is not limited, is not bound by those judgments. So many of the, the Buddha's teachings and the kind of reflections that he offers on uh, the uh, the way we relate to the sense world uh, are helping us to to change perceptions in those ways. So we have the reflections like on the um, the the four requisites on what we call the the four requisites the. Uh, robes that we wear, the alms food that we eat, the, the dwelling place, and, and medicines. These are the four supports for living as a human being. And so that uh, we have powerful instinctual rea uh, sense of reaction 
uh, around our, our clothing and our physical comfort. Um, we want to look good. We want to have uh, clothing that is uh, is comfortable, is uh, uh, is efficient, and has a uh, say a, a, an impact on other people that is pleasing, gives the right kind of effects when people see us with these with these clothes on. Um, we have a, a lot of conditioning around food, food that we like, food that we don't like, food that we approve of, food that we disapprove of. You know, tastes that we we favour, tastes that we don't. Um, a huge amount. They have whole TV channels devoted to to food. Not that I spend much time. <laughs> I, I have seen these things that usually when staying in a in a hotel room place or a hotel room or somebody's home, they put a, a, a TV and you flick through the channels and you realise this channel does nothing but food. Yeah, often twenty four hours a day, just food. <laughs> And different recipes or, or magazines that have whole sections on, on different recipes, different food combinations and uh, different uh, exciting new uh, improved dishes. So reflections on food, reflections on, on clothing, reflections on shelter. You know, the, where do we live? What does our, our living place look like? How much you know, time and effort is spent by people on what their house looks like or whether, what kind of apartment they have or what their address is and again decorating their place, the kind of furniture you have or the, whether you live in a kind of uh, make uh, makeshift uh, very uh, low grade or sort of dingy flat or whether you have a, a, a beautiful cottage in the country or you know, a big house or what your address is, what your, how you keep your garden uh, or do you just? Uh, yeah, what kind of relationship do you have to your your living place and your your shelter? And then medicine. You know, how much time do you obsess about your health? How many trips to the doctor do you want to make? You know, how how much time do you spend fretting about different feelings in the body or different symptoms that appear strange uh, marks on your skin or, or sensations in your your hands or your face or your back or your your knees and your guts. So just if we take a little moment to to skim through that and just not maybe for, just for ourselves, but just consider around the world how much time and effort, how many billions of pounds are spent every year uh, with attention on sort of refinements and particular details of clothing, the whole fashion industry, <laughs> clothing manufacturers, you know, sports clothing and fashion clothing and uh, the... Uh, uh, the uh, the clothing industry, the food industry, uh, the uh, the house housing industry, home decoration, home improvements, better homes and gardens, yeah, and uh, and medicine, the the massive amount of of attention on particular medical treatments, yeah, and uh, just to take that in, like yeah, that's a huge, these are huge areas of our, of of life and human interest and massive amounts of of time and energy and attention and concern, uh, preferences are built around those areas. So the Buddha's advice is to, to say, look at that, look at how much uh, time and effort and energy, how much of our resources get directed towards uh, clothing, uh, food, shelter, and uh, uh, medical treatment, and consider you know, what, do we, what do we really need as a human being? When we go forth uh, as monastics, then 
that uh, part of the the undertaking that we make that uh, after the 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 um, commitment to the precepts then the uh, the four things never to be done the four parajika rules are, are stipulated but also the four supports the these four areas of life and the, the deal that we make uh, as we go forth as monastics is to to set the intention to um, be content with with rags to wear rag robes just thrown away discarded cloth um, to uh, eat whatever arms food whatever food you're donated by whoever that's freely given to you whatever food is 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 put in your bowl and that's what you're happy to to live on uh, whatever kind of shelter living at the root of a tree just enough shelter the, the, the leaves on a tree will provide and the a trunk to lean against <laughs> and then fermented urine as uh, as medicine so we deliberately commit to being content with the lowest possible standard of living uh, as uh, say an example to ourselves even if the mind might immediately start negotiating <laughs> say well, well, well hang on a minute uh, can we can we discuss this a, a, a bit it, I feel it's it's a, a, a another one of the the uh, the brilliant aspects of the Buddha's teaching, his understanding of human nature, realizing the amount of instinctual energy that goes around the body, protection for the body, personal space where we live, uh, the the instinctual uh, urge for finding food um, to sustain the body, the and. The caring for the body in terms of, uh, of medical treatment and, and uh, re- relating to illness and injury and so on, that the Buddha understood these powerful instinctual energies in the mind and how much of our, of our human attention, our resources, can get spent um, on clothing, uh, food, shelter, and, uh, and medicine. And so as a, a, a skillful means, he encourages this a way of changing the perceptions. So even if uh, the, what we get, and, and say the way of life here, we have a very adequate, uh, um, we're very abundantly supplied in terms of clothing for, for the hot weather, for cold weather, for rainy weather. We have very well supplied in terms of, of accommodation. Uh, the, the Jose and the team in the kitchen uh the kitchen assistants and the uh, the people who offer all of the food, we are overabundantly uh, supplied. It's uh, more trying to limit the uh, <laughs> the intake of, of uh, delicious, glorious food offerings every day before we so get a bit too large for our... <laughs> uh, to sort of, uh, <clears throat> expand the size of our robes. To say, oh, This jacket's a bit tight. I need to lengthen the strings on my jacket. Somehow it's kind of a bit snugger than it used to be. <laughs> So we're abundantly supplied with, with wonderful food and uh, and medical treatment, the National Health Service and uh, all of the uh, the supports that uh, are provided in, in this country in various with chiropractors and osteopaths and uh, the uh, people with hearing, I mean, uh, hearing tests and vision tests and all the different kinds of medical treatment. So we're very, very well supplied. But by making the agreement in a conscious and deliberate way, right at the moment that you make the commitment to renunciation, it's a skillful tool, isn't it? It's a skillful way of setting a baseline. Like, 
that I'm making this agreement to at least have the intention to be content with rags to wear, um, uh, alms food of, of any kind whatsoever that, that lands in my bowl, uh, to live at the root of a tree uh, as a shelter, and to only have fermented urine as, a, as medicine. So that you're deliberately setting up the standard, the minimum possible standard of living as what you're content with, and then anything else is extra. So this is a way of changing our perceptions. You know, the, 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 the perception that says, well, I really like to have, you know, organic food or, or vegan food or I have to have Italian food or, you know, I really only like Sri Lankan food or Thai food or right? really Chinese food and you know, noodles would be much better. <laughs> or can't we have more bread or more, more rice? Or, the, uh, the, it's a way of illuminating the preferences and dependencies that we have. I can't eat this, I can't eat that, I should have this, I shouldn't have that, my diet needs to have this, my, I need more of that. Uh, it's a way of holding up uh, a mirror to those preferences and, and the uh, conditioning that can say, oh really? You know, life can't carry on unless you get this to eat or that to eat. Life can't carry on unless you've got the clothing made of, you know, all organically grown cotton, or the sort of, or that uh, it's got to be, you know, this particular kind of of, uh, uh, of cloth, or this particular kind of hat, or this particular kind of socks, or shoes. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> and so the, by setting that, uh, that basic standard, the minimum possible standard, it helps to illumine those dependencies that the mind creates. It's got to be this kind of clothing, or this kind of food, or this kind of shelter. I want, or, you know, that other monk, he's got a better room, or how come he's got a kuti and I haven't, or, you know, she's got the room with the two windows, I've only got one window, that's not fair. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's that way of changing the perception, to, to notice that feeling of, oh, that person's got something better than I have, or uh, I, can't, uh, I can't manage with this, or uh, I, we shouldn't have to deal with that. That kind of dependent and choosy mind. It's a way of looking at that, challenging it, and to, to say, well, is that so? You, you, really can't, you really can't carry on, you can't practice the Dhamma if you have that particular sensation in your skin from the cloth, or you... You have to wait in order to get a doctor's appointment. Uh, life will not carry on. You can't, you can't reflect on the arising and passing away of the five khandhas uh, unless you've had this doctor's appointment or unless you've uh, had this... Uh, <coughs> they are staying in this particular kind of, of a room or a kuti. Really? <laughs> to have this feeling in the body means you can't practice the dhamma, you can't... Uh, uh, you can't observe the changes of uh, of the the natural order. You can't observe the body and feelings, perceptions, mental formations. Really, that's that's uh, not available. So, uh, this simple kind of teaching on the four requisites helps us to to change our view. Or the again at the the time of the Pabajar, when we take the the novice precepts and the, the, uh, the and as the siladara and also the, as the bhikkhus novices, we have the reflection on the the five external features of the body: hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. You know, this is a, again a incredibly strong conditioning that we have. Uh, 
So we have you know, conditioning around uh, uh, clothing, around food, around uh, lodgings, around uh, around physical health. We have incredibly strong conditioning around physical appearance, our appearance, the others' appearance of others. Uh, what we look like: Are we tall? Are we short? Are we fat? Are we thin? Are we dark? Are we light? Are we wrinkled? Are we smooth-skinned? Yeah. How, how how do we look? How do others look? In the mind judging someone as attractive person, unattractive person, old person, young person. The uh, again, the, the Buddha was a genius in seeing how the, the mind is strongly habituated to particular perceptions. What's an, an attractive person? What's an unattractive person? What's beautiful? What's ugly? The power of conditioning in our minds is enormous. And so, I remember when I was being. Uh, uh, Trained to take on the 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 uh, novice precepts and was learning the the ceremony. I thought that's funny. How come this hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin? What's that doing in the in the ordination ceremony? What's that got to do with anything? I mean, that's it's just kind of totally beside the point, really. I mean, what we're doing is we're trying to meditate and you know, realize nibbana. What's that got to do with hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin? It seems to be completely beside the point. <laughs> Well, 40 years later, I realized, ah, oh, <laughs> I think I get the point. <laughs> this is uh, the Buddha's uh, genius, his brilliance at seeing uh, the conditioning of the mind, the strength and depth of our conditioning is is enormous, is a, a extraordinarily powerful. And to help the mind to change the perceptions that... Rather than judging ourselves or others, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm good-looking, I'm bad-looking, I'm old, I'm young. This person is attractive, unattractive. Uh, that's a, a beautiful person, a, 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 an ugly person. Uh, the way we, we can relate in terms of someone's race, whether uh, where someone is European, or someone is Asian, or someone is African, or someone is you know, uh, from the north, from the south. All of that, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. How we judge each other. Someone's got beautiful teeth or uh, ugly teeth. Someone's got beautiful skin, ugly skin. Someone, uh, their hair is, their hair is uh, beautiful. Their hair is awful. Their hair, you know, they, they should shave more often or they, they're. So much time, attention, energy gets spent on hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. Sometimes you see them in the town all together, you know, the, the hairdresser and the, you know, the, the barber shop and then the nail parlor and the tanning shop. Often the dentist is a bit <laughs> down the street, but <laughs> sometimes you get at least Kesaloma, Naka and Tacho <laughs> all together. But, uh, they kind of come as a bundle, you know, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails and skin. Billions and billions, hundreds, probably hundreds of billions of pounds uh, are spent around the world on physical appearance. I remember years ago I was down in, at a, actually was a Dalai Lama teaching in Los Angeles and the, the, uh, the local telephone directory in, in Los Angeles had this, the, the, the section on, on um, cosmetic surgery and, uh, and uh, um, 
body adjustments and, and treatments it, in the local phone directory was it was like dozens and dozens of pages like about 80 or 90 pages just on cosmetic surgery <laughs> you know, hairdressers and tanning salons uh, you know, the, the the directory was only about an inch and a half thick and probably half you know a quarter of an inch was was uh, on Kesaloma Nakadanta Tacho <laughs> physical appearance the uh, So that is powerful conditioning. That uh, even if you think, well, I don't really, I don't, I never wear makeup, you know, I don't really care what my hair looks like, you know. Still, it, uh, the 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 way the eye turns towards someone who the 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 system the system finds attractive, that the attention turns, and then doesn't turn towards those who do we don't find attractive. What is it that's turning the head, turning the eye towards that person? That says, "Oh, that's an attractive person." That the the Buddha is giving us this as, as a tool to help recognize that instinct, that extraordinarily powerful urge of, of sexual interest. The way we, we judge each other, the way that we we uh, evaluate each other, and getting a perspective on that and freeing the heart from the, the limitations that come from that is a is a, a very very. Uh, Important aspect of of our of our practice that to, to recognize you can't just decide not to make those judgments or not to be pulled by those forces, but to at least recognize how they operate and how absurd that is. And so that uh, so in this respect, I I would often uh, I'd look at animals or, like, or insects and and to uh, reflect you know, that that spider is probably extremely attractive to another spider. I can't look at that spider and feel any kind of Desire, the physical desire for a spider, like there's nothing there. But for another spider of the appropriate gender or orientation, would be having extremely powerful feelings. Like, wow, look at those eyes, all eight of them, spark, beautiful, sparkly eight eyes. Look at the uh, look at the the spiny hairs on those legs. Wow. But uh, as a human being, I don't know any human being who feels any kind of sexual attraction towards spiders. Maybe I'm sure there's a few. <laughs> Not in the world, I'm sure there's a, there's a few, but uh, it's, I would imagine it's pretty rare. But just to to use that kind of a of a, of a shifting of perception and say, isn't that interesting? How just it's really there's the the surface of that uh, that person. It's just case alone nakadanta tacho, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, that's all. That's the that's the 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 layer of that being that meets the world and the mind can get very interested or excited about that, or very judgmental and critical of the you know, uh, uh, an ugly person, an off putting person. So just to turn the attention and to to, to reflect on that, to 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 consider well, that person. Why does the mind say that person's not attractive, or that's not good-looking? Why does that, the mind say that that person is that configuration? Or just below the skin, you've got layers of muscles and fat and tendons and you know, blood and lymph, and just below the surface, you know, not even a quarter of an inch below, like you know, a tenth of an inch below the skin, it gets pretty goopy and unattractive. Again, I'm sure there's a few that prefer people with their skin off than they're on, but <laughs> who get get a, a, a serious buzz from going to that uh, Body World's exhibitions. The skinless people are more attractive than the ones with skin on, but again, I think it's 
pretty small minority. <laughs> but the, this is a, a skillful means that the Buddha offered to help change the perceptions, to, to get, uh, help us get a perspective on that. And also right there at the, at the going forth, at the, the commitment to renunciation, the commitment of the heart to crossing over all dukkha, then there's this, the Buddha hands us this, this, uh, uh, this means of reflection. Kesa Lomanakadantatacho. So it's a, 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 a direct way of getting perspective on self-view. I am this body. Uh, I am this person. This is who and what I am. It's a, a, a skillful means of saying, is that so? Oh, really? <laughs> you know, you might say, uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a white person or I'm a black person. You know, you take the skin off and we're all the same color. <laughs> We're all got red and goopy, you know, and below the skin, that uh, one color. <laughs> so where where does that uh, being dark skinned, light skinned, golden skinned, uh, wrinkly skinned, smooth skinned? It's it's just a one tiny superficial aspect of of what we are. So these kind of reflections can give a a, a direct insight. A truly liberating insight into self-view. How we say, "I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm tall. I'm short. I'm overweight. I'm underweight. I'm healthy. I'm unhealthy." Um, and how much the "I am that" is believed in, uh, is taken for granted, and is taken as a, as a, a, a substantial reality. So these kind of reflections help us to ask, yeah, "Is that so? Is that the whole story? Is that?" Absolutely true, or is that just a, a way of speaking about a particular configuration? You know, whether you are, uh, you know, the the right size, a good size, a bad size. <laughs> it's a very sub, uh, very subjective. It's conditioned. You know, if you live in a culture where um, having a lot of, uh, of of flesh on the bones is considered attractive. Then someone who's got a body like that, then people will see them. Oh, it's a you know very attractive person, you know, fleshy. <laughs> and then in a different place, they, oh, that person's dreadfully overweight. Similarly, in, in different society where somebody is where it's taken to, you have to look emaciated in order to be attractive and get your picture in the in the, the mag, fashion magazine. Then there's kind of being skin and bone is looked. Oh, wow, so skinny. That's great. But to someone from a different culture, they go, "Ah, oh, that's like a person's like a skeleton. Oh, poor thing. What happened? What happened to her? <laughs> she needs to fat me up." <laughs> so it's it's extremely helpful to to uh, consider the subjective, dependent nature of perception, and to use these reflections that the Buddha offers to to, to get a get a perspective on those judgments that the mind makes, and by bringing that in to say, look at, consider self-view. I think, well, I, I get so concerned about these these wrinkles appearing or the the uh, uh, kind of size of the body or the texture of the body or the the uh, the, the feelings of it. But it's just case along manakadanta tacho, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. Is this really who and what I am? Is this uh, and then in that moment? There's a seeing through of self-view, the way the mind judges others. It helps to to uh, really penetrate 
the self-view and see, well, this is just a dependent construction. It's just a habit of perception. That's all. You call it attractive, it's attractive. You call it unattractive, it's unattractive. It's, it's, there's no thing there. The mind creates the thingness of it. The mind creates attractive. The mind creates unattractive. The mind creates good, bad. It's, it's a subjective, mind-made perception. The mind is everything. The mind is everything. <laughs> the thingness is created by the mind's attitude. So these reflections uh, help us to, to change the, the perception, you know, free the heart from the limitations that come from that. Uh, another example of this, uh, um, uh, that uh, Lumpur Sumato, many, many years ago, uh, that I often quote, and I feel it's, it has a very powerful effect, is when... Uh, uh, we were on a, a community retreat together with him, and uh, he was, uh, I guess, perceiving a certain amount of of tension and kind of uh, intensity in the in the room. That people were uh, they very focused on the meditation, and it was a bit of a crowded situation. So there was a certain amount of irritation with each other about the amount of noise in the room, or people. Um, uh, say, uh, kind of making the concentration practice of others a bit more challenging, a bit more difficult, and uh, uh, the uh, kind of tension or friction that can that can uh, grow up in a uh, in a uh, retreat situation or when you're all in the same hall together. And uh, Lumpur made the observation. He said that rather than than judging each other as this person's good, that one, that person's bad, that one's really noisy, and that one's really uh, that one's always late, and you know, and this person's always falling asleep, and that one's kind of breathes heavily, and <laughs> the, this one's really inspiring. That's how everyone should sit like that. You know that that's that's really impressive. That's really awful. And the, as Lumpur could do so effectively, just sort of riffing on these themes of how we we judge each other in sort of critical ways, or praising this one, uh, complaining about that one. Uh, he made this observation. He said, instead of of, uh, of seeing each other as uh, as good examples or bad examples, and, and uh, uh, attaching to those critical views, so instead we can just see each other, see all of us as fields of merit, as a punya keta. You know, like in the, in a chanting, we say an, an unex, um, unsurpassed, uh, they give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. This is the the, the translation of the term punyaketa, a field of merit, a field of blessing. So rather than judging someone by whether they sit straight or they don't sit straight, you can see them as a field of, of blessings. <laughs> whether someone is, is always on time or someone's uh, always late, you can look at uh, them as a, a field of blessings. Whether you, uh, uh, say, are impressed by their, their practice or you're not, you can still see this, that person as a field of blessings. That they, uh, someone who's living the holy life, someone who's whether they're a layperson or a monastic, they're keeping the precepts, they're following the routine of the retreat. They are, uh, they are a, a cause of blessings to arise in the world, and that, that uh, it still sticks with me all these years later, many decades later. When Lumpur made that observation, it really did change. You could, you know, all sitting there with our eyes closed, listening to him expanding on the Dhamma, and then. He made that comment, and then you look around and you go, oh my goodness, 
it never occurred to me to see other, my fellow, my dear brothers and sisters in the monastic life. It never occurred to, to me to see them in that way. <laughs> and how it, just that simple observation that Lumpur made was it really put into contrast. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I praise this one. I criticize that one. I think this is good. That's bad. This is impressive. That's irritating. That's right. That's wrong. And, uh, to, um, to kind of see how habitual those judgments were and to, to recognize we don't have to see each other that way. We can see each other as a, a, a field of blessing, as a, a, a cause of, uh, incomparable goodness to arise in the world. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. And I would say this isn't, this you know, technically is, it's sort of confined to the members of the monastic order, but I will say anyone who's a Dhamma practitioner, uh, anyone who's uh, living by the precepts, who's uh, intending to uh, guide their, their life towards what is wholesome, to let go of the unwholesome, to be living in a, a skillful and modest way, setting out a beautiful example as a uh, as a uh, human being living skillfully it's also give a gives occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world and that's worthy of respect it's worthy of uh, of honor and uh, if we uh, again if you see the habitual judgments of you know I like this person I don't like that person this one's good that one's bad <laughs> Uh, the, how the mind judges others and, and sort of classes others in according to our standards of, of like and dislike in our perceptions, then to deliberately shift that. And, and again, just like saying, you know, I will be content with rag robes, um, you know, alms food to eat, uh, root of a tree to, to, li uh, to live out on fermented urine as medicine. Yeah, you know, you're setting a standard. You don't can't automatically change your perceptions like that, <laughs> but you're, you're setting a standard for yourself. So similarly, when you find your mind getting critical or you know full of praise and blame of uh, of the the your fellow practitioners on a retreat or living here at the monastery, fellow monastics, just to raise that as a, as a suggestion in one's mind to say, well, maybe I can see this person as a field of merit rather than just that annoying monk who's always late or. <laughs> Or that one who breathes in that really irritating way, or that's got that that, uh, <coughs> that um, uh, annoying way of walking that creates such a racket in the vihara. <laughs> but uh, well, the, can I see them as a field of merit? Can I see them as a a source of, of blessings in the world? And just to raise that up as a suggestion and see what happens in the heart when you, rather than dwelling upon your own perceptions and judgments to shift it, to, to uh, deliberately, uh, say, get a perspective on your habitual perceptions and to change the, the way the mind sees things, to, to challenge the habits and to help the, 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 the heart, the mind, to, to, to see and to know the world in a, a radically different way, a way that's free of self-view, a way that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So I offer these thoughts for reflection this evening.